My name is Danny Hindman. I am not a pastor here, but I am a pastor. I'm the campus minister for a ministry called RUF, or Reformed University Fellowship, down at um, UW-Madison. And uh, RUF is actually the denominational ministry of the PCA, which is the denomination that this church is a part of. And so, whether you knew it or not, I am your missionary down at UW, and uh, I'm thankful for you guys. I'm thankful for your support and your prayers, uh, and I'm excited to be able to preach to you guys today. Um, Just a brief word about RUF. RUF is uh, a ministry that we're basically committed to doing three things on campus, and we, we moved there in August 2016 to start the ministry along with the church plant. This feels very comfortable and very familiar to me, Um, but we were called down there to to start a ministry that would dwell richly in God's Word, that would uh, invite students in to ask questions of the Scriptures, the kinds of questions that are raised in Ecclesiastes, those kinds of things. Uh, We want to uh, familiarize and enrich students with knowledge of the Bible. We want them to be, we want to create a space where people who have no familiarity with the Bible uh, can come in and can read it and can learn about what it means uh, that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ and has lived and died and risen for us. So we want to do that. We also uh, we want to be a community where students are able to explore what it means that they are students, like what it means to be a Christian in the world, what it means to be preparing for a vocation. Uh, we want students to understand that to be a Christian is not to be pulled out of the world, but to be sent into the world with a new a new worldview with new spectacles, uh, with meaning, deep meaning imbued in everything. Uh, and then we also want to be a ministry that is a bridge into the church, and that's a major part of what we're doing. So we were sent there to start a campus ministry, but also participate in the planting of a church. Uh, we want students to cultivate a love for the bride of Christ, both while they're students and then afterwards, to have an instinct uh, to look for the church. And if that's something that uh, appeals to you, if you're excited about the gospel moving into UW, in another way, um, if you're excited about uh, student ministry or if you know anyone that is heading down to UW, come find me after the service. I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, well, I've been invited up here to preach on Ecclesiastes. Um, Ecclesiastes, if you haven't noticed, is a strange and difficult book. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an especially difficult book to kind of drop into and preach a sermon on uh, in the middle of a series. But it's a deeply relevant book. It's a book, uh, if you've been uh, here or if you've been hearing uh, the different preachers that have come through and preached on this book to you guys, it's, it's full of meditations on life <laughs> and its meaning. Um, and there's a thing, there's a, the character of Ecclesiastes that, that is so jarring to me, I think, is, is there's, there's a shadow hanging over the book. And you hear it in the opening verses, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Life is like vapor. It's like breath. It's like when you go outside and it's cold, you exhale, you can see it and then it disappears. That is what our life is like. And if that's true, the question that's kind of haunting Koheleth, or the preacher, the author of this text, is what's the point? Where are we going to find something that's worth pursuing, worth doing? See, Koheleth was a king and he had seen all that there was to see in the world. He uh, he had riches, he had power, he had uh, skill, and what he, dis- what, he, what he began to see is that this world is full of futility. It's a striving after the wind. Think about that. <laughs> uh, grasping after the wind. And if you've been paying attention, you've noticed that he attends to the realities of the human life with brutal honesty, which is one of the great things about the books, but also one of the jarring things about the book. 
brutal honesty about the brevity of our lives, the difficulty of our lives, the fleeting character of pleasure, the meaning of our suffering. And if you've been walking along with him, you are intended to ask those questions yourself about life. All of you in here have suffered. I know this. Some have suffered things like suicide, some stillbirth or miscarriage. That's actually in this text specifically. Some are suffering even now. Some of you knew uh, Bruce Marker. Some of you are grieving now. And these circumstances are the kinds of circumstances that bring to fore the realities that Koheleth is talking about here that we are skilled at keeping in the background. And so these, these kinds of circumstances, uh, they have inspired our author's ruminations on the meaning of, of happiness and despair in light of the end that comes to us all. So it's a heavy prospect to look at this book. And the question that's haunting the text always is, what is the point? Is there a point? And so I'm going to turn to the text now. Uh, if you have a Bible, it's uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It's just after the Psalms. And we're going to start in verse 18 and read through the end of chapter 6. This is Ecclesiastes 5.18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to to, to one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it, has, it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage of man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what he will be after him under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today and for uh, the sunshine and for the beautiful weather, for the opportunity to gather together to sing to you, to pray to you, to listen to your word read and preached, to feast at your table. We pray that you would be with us as you have promised to be, that you would speak to us through your word here, that you would challenge us, and that you would make your intention clear to us through this text. 
I pray that you would help me to preach and that you would help the people here to listen. And we pray for all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, one of the great um, myths, I think, of American culture is this assumption that we have that happiness is directly correlated to wealth. Anybody familiar with that? If you, if you are listening, are the, the rhetoric about education and work and all these things, it, it assumes that happiness and wealth are directly correlated. It's this strangely pervasive myth because we know that it's not true. We know that it's not true. The, you know, the miserable business tycoon, the, the, the CEO sitting alone behind his desk has become a trope. It's a, it's, a, it's a caricature. It's a stereotype, right? You see this all over the place in movies and films and those kinds of things. But it's a powerful myth, and many of us believe it. Even though despair comes at us, you know, unfettered, regardless of where we are on the economic scale, this kind of pursuit, this, this belief in this correlation is showing itself. And not only in like films and, and literature and those kinds of things, but, but also in, with our kids, like Silicon Valley, right? Silicon Valley is the home of, you know, the great, um, the great computer kind of empire that America has built or whatever. It's, it's one of the wealthiest places in the country, and its high schools have some of the highest rates of suicide in the country. Nationwide, students are struggling with mental illness, right? So in L.A., in the, in the L.A. United School District, in five years, they went from 255 cases of serious mental illness slash contemplation of suicide, and five years later, they're up to 5,000. The life expectancy in this country has dropped in the past couple of years for the first time since 1930, and it's directly correlated to suicide. Depression is the leading cause, it's the leading serious uh, medical issue in the country. I've faced my own battle with depression, and I want to say to you that depression is not simple. If you have experienced it, you know this, right? It's not always situational. However, there is an alarming correlation in this country right now, in our time, between material success this, in this this. This never-ending drive to achieve and despair. And this correlation is not new. This correlation is spoken of here in this text. And so this is a deeply relevant question that Koheleth is asking. What is the point? <laughs> what is the point? What is the point? And I want, I want to look at this text in three ways. The, the title of the sermon and the, the kind of headspace I want you to be in is uh, what I've called the givenness of things, like uh, the givenness of things. And the way we want to look through this text is, is what Koheleth has to say about rejecting the givenness of things, receiving the givenness of things, and then how that correlates to our longings. So receiving, rejecting givenness, receiving givenness, and the end of our longing. So first... Rejecting the givenness of things, all right? So in addition to all the evil, if you've been walking along in this series, in addition to all of the evil and all of the vanity and all of the wickedness that Koheleth has seen, our guide comes to verses 1 through 7 in chapter 6. He says, there is an evil, another evil, that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. This is a grievous evil. 
Here's what is evil, he says, the inability to enjoy the things that God has given to you. I actually think this is an endemic problem in America, right? So we've talked about the statistics in Silicon Valley, but it characterizes the way we talk about all sorts of things. We talk about work, we talk about our bodies, we talk about education, with this, with this inability to be satisfied with what we have been given. We've bought into this bizarre vision of life where nothing is ever good enough, where you should never stop improving, you should never stop driving, you should never stop to enjoy the things that God has given you. And we lionize the figures who spearhead this kind of talk. We do this with athletes. Tell me if this sounds familiar. I never want to stop to think about my legacy. <laughs> uh, commentators say, he just doesn't have that hunger. Or if he, if, he, if, he, if he forgoes all else to pursue victory, to improve himself, then he's a true champion. We applaud people like this. We say that that's greatness. We say it's greatness when they neglect their families and their health and all their relationships, all their relationships for material gain or personal improvement. We do this with CEOs who are never satisfied. You're not worth much if you're not pursuing, if you're not trying to change the world. These are our saints, right? We celebrate their neglect of, of, of whole, wholeness and health because they're driven. And our guide sees through that kind of thing. And he says, no, no, no. If you would reflect for a second, your life and your work are like mist. It's here and then it fades. And it is a mistake to give yourself to this never-ending pursuit, this, this more, better, all the time, right? There's John Rockefeller, 20th century tycoon, richest man in the world, right? Way richer than Bill Gates. There's a story about him that says uh, somebody walked up to him and asked him, uh, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? He said, just a little more. Koheleth says, that is vanity. Wealth is no guarantee of happiness. And here's why. This is underneath, I think, what he's saying. He's saying... This never-ending pursuit of more is rooted in the belief that all of life is earned. And Koheleth says he was a king. And he had all he could ever want. He built power and prestige. And he sees straight through this. He says, no, all of life is given. The very air you breathe is given. It is all a gift. And to reject this is to refuse to recognize this fact that all is given. And you will spend your days maniacally running on a hamster wheel of the corporate ladder or whatever it is that you're involved in. And this will result, he says, in a profoundly sad life. A deeply tragic vision of your brief life that's here like vapor and gone. And in fact, he says, it'd be better if you had never been born. This is a profound challenge, I think, to our achievement-oriented age. I don't know if you all feel this pressure, but I feel this pressure. So I want to ask you, is this you? Have you bought into this vision? Always more, never satisfied. I understand it is an enticing dream, but at the end of the day, or at the end of your life, <laughs> it's meaningless. So that's the first thing. That's what he, this is the vision that he paints when you reject the givenness of things. But he also talks about receiving givenness, okay? And we wanna, I want to jump back up to the top in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 5. 
Okay, so if that's you, if you're here and you are realizing that you have bought into this vision, and to some extent we're all bought into this vision, I think. We're all at least tempted to believe in this vision of rejecting givenness. Our guide actually gives us an alternative, which is nice. He says, I found something good. And if you've been reading through Ecclesiastes, uh, it's about time that he found something good. Um, It's like a chance to exhale when you're reading this book. And here's what he says. He says, here's what's good, verses 18 and 19. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Receive the givenness of things, he says. Let go of your endless striving for more, for more money, for more power, for more prestige, for more recognition, and receive the good things that, the good things that you've been given. This is a good life, is what he says. That is what is good. Before we keep going, I want to... I I want to say there are two things that he does not mean, all right? These things might be popping into your head as you're hearing me say this. I think the first thing he does not mean is that he's not, this is not uh, a, a text or a section of the Bible that's to be used as a means of oppressing the poor. It could be used that way because this is their lot, right? That's not what he's getting at, okay? And this is also not a license to do whatever it is you want and enjoy it. In fact, in chapter 2, he says he's done that and it is vanity, And the sharpest words of condemnation from the prophets in the Old Testament are for people who have used, who justify their oppression of the poor and their neglect of the poor uh, for spiritual reasons. Okay, so that's not what's happening here. But what he does mean is that if you can't thank God for the goods that he has given you, and I know that people in this room have lived very difficult lives, you've experienced suffering, but he has given you goods. If you cannot receive his goods, if you can't receive what is true about reality, that all of life is given and sustained, not earned, not taken, but is given by God, your life will always have a very tragic hue to it. And yet, if you do learn to receive the givenness of things, if you begin to acknowledge that even this teaching from Koheleth is a gift, (laughs) uh, there is an amazing potential for beauty in this life. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not something you get from therapeutic self-talk, from like live, laugh, love. That's not what we're talking about here. Koheleth will call that out in a second, and he will say that that is nothing more than a vain delusion. Living and laughing and loving, and those, two, those things too are, are nothing but vapor and vanity, a mist that's here and gone. I actually think Koheleth is recognizing something that's a lot deeper. He's a man examining life and its features, right? All of, all of life. And he's kind of turning it over in his hands. He's looking at it from every angle. And he said, at the end of the day, he recognized that death haunts us all. That's, those are in the opening verses of the book. And the only thing that gives any meaning to this life, the only thing that makes possible, any, that, that anything is possibly good, is to be satisfied and receive what God has given you and enjoy, and enjoy that which is beautiful. Rooted in his conclusion at the end of the book, which is that God will bring everything into judgment. You see, the question that our, that our guide is asking, he said it, it haunts the whole book, is what one commentator calls the eternal why. This is what he says. He says, our fondest hopes are shattered. Why? Nazi hordes overrun Europe. Why? God allows war. Why? A brilliant young Christian life is swept away while a good-for-nothing wastrel is miraculously delivered. Why? 
Why? Where is the sense in it all? And one of the difficult things about this book is you have to kind of read it all together. So in, in Kohelet's answer to these questions is, is we find it in a couple places, right? In, verse, in chapter 3, he says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. They cannot fathom all that he has done from beginning to end. God is active, but we can't understand its fullness. And then at the end, after considering everything in this, what he calls this vain life, in chapter 12, he says, all has been heard, or all has been taken account of. Fear God, keep his commandments, for God will bring every good deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We cannot fathom all that God has done, and he will bring all things into judgment. And if that's true, if those two things are true, then you can enjoy the pleasure of a good meal with loved ones as an actual good. You can enjoy the fleeting beauty of a sunset as an actual good. And you can enjoy the work to which you've been called as an actual good. I think this is what Paul means in 1 Thessalonians when he says, aspire to live a quiet life. Mind your own business and work with your hands. And he says something similar in 1 Timothy. He says, everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected, and this is key, if it is received with thanksgiving. If you acknowledge it, it is a gift. And so cease your endless striving, he says. This is a rejection of the givenness of things, and receive with thanksgiving what God has made you and who he is making you into. And that is the image of his son. Now, I want to acknowledge that this is hard and it's complicated. It's one of the strange things about wisdom literature because there are always objections that start to fire off in your mind, right? First reason I think it's complicated is because God does want you to use your gifts to the best of your ability. Okay, One of the most profound and freeing things anyone ever said to me was this pastor who I really admire. He said, God loves you and the church needs, to, needs you to do what you're good at. So God does not want you, God does want you to pursue your gifts with vigor, <laughs> to work hard, to do your best. But God does not want you to use your gifts for, en- for the endless pursuit of power or the endless pursuit of pleasure or the endless pursuit of more. That's the first complicated part. The second complicated part is that nothing and no one in our time reinforces this outlook. You're not going to hear this message from anywhere. And so to live this way is going to require a continual and repetitive giving of yourself to the love of God and neighbor, to pay attention, to hear the kind of inflated rhetoric of our striving culture for what it is, which is vanity. It's a striving after the wind. So that's rejecting the givenness of things. That's receiving the givenness of things. It is a great evil to reject givenness, Kohela says. It is a real good to receive givenness, he says. And I believe those things are true. I do. They pose a challenge to my own ambition <laughs> uh, for respect, for admiration, for popularity and all that stupid stuff that I think is important. And I hope it does for you too. And most of what's been said so far has been said to Christians, which I think most of you are, which makes sense because this is a church. But I want you to listen to this last bit, okay? Especially if you're here and if you're not a Christian or if you're not quite a Christian. Because in verse 7 of chapter 6 through the end of the chapter, 
our God continues his quest. And I think he actually gets beneath the surface and gets more to the heart of the matter about the value of our work and of our, of our striving, our toil, he says. And he, he begins to talk about appetite. And he begins to talk about the inability to satisfy our appetite. A more kind of wooden translation of, of uh, satisfaction is filling. He begins to talk about the inability to get filled. It's like a um, proto-Rolling Stones situation. Can't get no satisfaction. Yeah, you're good. So the inability to satisfy our appetite, we have all kinds of appetites, right? And And despite our toil, everywhere in the world, there are people all over the world, if you haven't experienced this yet, you will. We set goals, we accomplish them, and we feel utterly let down by the feeling afterwards. Anybody familiar with that feeling? There is a longing deep in the human heart to be filled. And this world is full of people. And us too, in our, in our darkest moments, who are just wandering around, like groping in the dark, desperate for something to satisfy them. Some level, this is the story of all of us. And it was the story of a man named Augustine who lived a long time ago. In the year 386, he was desperate for filling. He had spent the last few decades uh, filling his life with ideas, looking for filling through ideas. He moved from philosophical movement to philosophical movement to religious sect to religious sect tried to fill himself there and was dissatisfied. Then he, he moved to sex. He tried to fill himself uh, with sexual pleasure. He was notoriously promiscuous. And he found no filling. And he tried to fill himself with prominence and with respect. He was one of the greatest lecturers, the greatest public speakers of his day. He taught rhetoric. And he had spent his life toiling to satisfy his appetite and could find nothing to fill it. And then he found himself in Milan. I don't know how he got there. But he found himself in Milan, and he began, he began to go to church and sit under the preaching of a man named Ambrose. And then he began to read the scriptures for himself, and he encountered not another philosophy, not another means to self-help, but the living God, as he read the story of the Bible. And the story that the Bible tells is not a story of best practices, it's not a philosophy to help you manage your life. It's not a a way to become your best self. That's not what Koheleth is interested in in talking about at all. But it's the story of the world. It's the story of a God who made this world and everything in it and called it very good and he embraced it and he actually filled it, not just with good things, but with his very presence. And then this perfection was ruined by sin and men and women were launched by their own doing into the wilderness of this world, desperate for God's embrace, desperate to be filled again. And the the story the Bible tells is the story of the living God who, in the person of Christ, brought man and and God back together again. They hang together in his very person. And this person lived and died and rose again that you might be filled by him. And everything that we've said this morning, this afternoon, Depends on this. It hangs on whether or not you think this is true. Koheleth is, whatever he says, will not make sense and will not 
withstand the tidal wave of despair that will come at you at some point, unless the story that the Bible tells is true. There are lots of ways to help yourself, lots of ways that don't require, you know, gathering up your family or whatever at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon and coming to hang out with church. There are lots of ways to improve yourself, not what Koheleth is interested in. The Christian story affirms that God has made us for himself, and this is Augustine's key insight at the end of all his searching. And we will, we, his insight is that we will be restless until we rest in him. So if you are here and you are restless, you can be a Christian and be restless. If you're here and you're restless, seek the Christ while he may be found, because he's not far from any one of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. Thank you for all the things that you've given us. And we pray that you would help us to receive the givenness of things. This is not natural for us. This is not normal for us. We pray that you would keep us from rejecting the lot that you have given us with all caveats to that understood. Lord, we pray that you would help us and that you would have mercy on us. And we pray for all these things in your son's name. Amen.